Hey there, welcome to episode six of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Josh Molin, a neuroscience researcher investigating blue light's impact on our brains. We're all getting a little bit more screen time than we bargained for lately, so Drew and I decided to get to the bottom of what this increased exposure might mean for your health, sleep, and mind. Let's get after it. Dr. Josh Moland studied natural sciences at the University of Cambridge, specializing in neurobiology. He then moved north to pursue his PhD under Professor Rob Lucas at the University of Manchester. Since then, Dr. Moland has moved to work with Professor Tim Brown at the same university. Throughout his PhD and subsequent postdocs, he has been interested in non-image forming vision, the brain areas that respond to various aspects of light, but control various functions and behaviors. In his spare time, Dr. Moland also enjoys athletics, mostly the decathlon and icosathlon, which is a double decathlon, and would love to meet Joseph Detmer sometime. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm actually going to start off by asking a completely non-science related question. Who is Joseph Detmer? So he is um, the world record holder for the double decathlon and it's just phenomenal the amount of points he scored. So if you think world number one decathlete, you're looking at 9,000 points. To go to the Olympics, you're looking around 8,000 and so forth. So a 7,000 point decathlon is you're a good, very good decathlete. And he managed to perform basically two of those. Very talented person. So, Did he manage that in the Olympics or was that what a world championship of decathlons? Uh, kind of. So it's not registered by the IAAF. Um, so it's a separate event, but it was the world championships for the icosathlons, I think, when he did that about a year before I started. So, yeah. And we're complaining about having to take our dog out in the morning. So I guess now we can jump into the science and the research behind all this. And I think this is actually a really interesting topic now, I think, as more and more people are using screens and spending time on screens than we potentially ever have in human history. Because even classrooms and board meetings are being put on Zoom. This interview is on Zoom. So what have you found in regards to blue light and its effect on the human brain and the human body that is actually different than what most people would argue? So this is regard to the recent paper we published, and it's not necessarily different. It's, again, it's going a bit, bit complex, a uh, bit quick. So the way our paper is kind of uh, presented is we're trying to find out more of the fundamentals of and the kind of fine-tuning of how light affects our internal body clock. And the photoreceptors in your eye um, project to a brain region that controls your internal body clock. All the photoreceptors in your eye do have some input there. And it was found that uh, melanopsin is very potent um, in regulating your internal body clock. And that is most sensitive to short wavelengths of light, which we would say would be blue. However, if you've done kind of GCCA level biology, you'll hear about cones and rod photoreceptors. And one kind of broad category of that is saying in dim light levels, you have your rods and then in kind of night vision. And then in your daytime, you have the cones, which also give you the sensation of color. And color itself is purely driven by cones. Okay, so when we talk about blue light, we're purely talking about 
what we kind of visual perception and what we see as blue. And so it's trying to get separate the dichotomy of this melanopsin expression in renal ganglion cells, which are responsive to short wavelengths of light, but that doesn't necessarily mean you would perceive that as blue. And so we wanted to look at how colour, as in the information relayed from cones relating to whether something's blue or red, affects our body clock when melanopsin is kept constant. So an example or analogy is here um, would be like a car analogy. In a very kind of broad situation, if you're driving a car, you could put both feet down on the accelerator pedal and the brake pedal. And the car might move a little bit, but it would be working suboptimally. And that might be what's happened if you just present blue light. You've got your accelerator, which might be a melanopsin. You've got your cones, which might be the brakes. But actually, if you learn to alter them independently of one another, you can actually receive a much kind of greater effect. So it's trying to separate that. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that what you showed is that these the yellow light you kind of separated yellow and blue the two kind of ends of the visible spectrum and found that yellow light actually has a greater effect on our circadian clocks than does blue um no so i would say for the general population if you were to just see light in general then potentially blue or short wavelength light which we perceive as blue has the most effect so affecting that but if you want to go and talk to people who maybe design lights and kind of things along those lines, then actually, rather than just give you a blue light, which is, say, a single wavelength, you can use multiple different um, wavelengths to kind of create something that is beneficial to both systems. So, for instance, if you imagine a banana in real life, it's what colour? Yellow. Yellow. Perfect. And that's because light from the sun hits the banana and that those with the wavelength of yellow light reflect back into your eye. You can also make a banana on your computer screens, yeah? But is there any yellow LED in your computer? No, I don't think so. Televisions, computers generally work through having a primary color system of red, green and blue. But you can still give the same image of a, say, yellow banana but there's no yellow light coming to you, if that makes sense. And it's that trick with using multiple different light where you can actually uh, create something that looks the same but has a different pattern or a different effect. So I guess that begs the question, you know, there's so much publicly available information, I would say, or publicly available push to wear blue light glasses or to turn our devices onto some kind of nighttime mode that reduces the amount of blue light that we perceive on our computer screen. It kind of adds this yellowish tint to the computer screen or our phone screen. Is that actually helping us at all? Um, so there will be potentially some benefits. I've not looked into the data hugely on kind of whether it's seen as beneficial, but the idea behind it is that you want to reduce the amount of melanopic input. So the amount of light that's stimulating these melanopsin photoreceptors. And so one way to do that would be to shift the color of the screen to wavelengths that this photoreceptor can't detect. And that will work, okay? And that's what a lot of these apps do. And the same with the blue blocking glasses. The other option is to reduce the brightness and that would have a similar effect. The melanopsin expressing cells 
can't tell the difference between a very dim stimuli or a very bright one at a wavelength that it detects poorly. So either method is fine. So does that mean instead of necessarily switching from blue light or our like normal daytime computer screen light to nighttime mode or more of a yellow hued screen, we can simply dim the brightness and would have the same effect? Or do those effects compound on each other? Um, the effects will probably have some kind of compound. The reason behind that is you've got the melanopsin stimulation and then you've got the cones and rod stimulation as well. So if you dim the brightness, you reduce melanopsin stimulation. If you shift the color, you reduce melanopsin stimulation. You could do both and it would have a greater effect. But what we are saying is that if you shift the color, although you will uh, reduce melanopsin input, you will actually increase the cone input. So it's a bit like the brake and the accelerator. So you, they're working a little bit antagonistically there. So I think the last time I learned about and discussed the features of eyes is probably my high school biology class. So please forgive me if I'm misremembering something. But from what I remember, cones are found in greater density in the front of our vision. And then the rods are in greater density in the outskirts of our vision because we don't really need that color in our peripheral vision. Is there some sort of density map to melanopsin or are they kind of found throughout our eyes in a relatively constant density? They are found throughout the eye. There are different classes of melanopsin cells that have definitely been shown in kind of mice. But in humans, I think they have shown some, but not, not all of them. There is a slight density gradient observed in mice. I'm not too sure if there's a slight density gradient in humans, but it's, it's nothing too major. So where do you think the research is going next with this? What's the next frontier or challenge you want to tackle? So the next uh, challenge for me personally is looking at different kind of brain regions and seeing how these photoreceptors influence them. So... There are multiple brain areas that receive light input, but not all of them are involved with conscious kind of visual perception. And so um, one of the areas that I'm currently looking at is the lateral hypothalamus um, and looking at the types of information that is relayed there that may be used for other things to do with arousal, awake, certain behaviours and stuff like that. So It actually is pretty fascinating too because so much, you know, the, the circadian rhythm and, and the human circadian rhythm is something that has been essentially constant throughout, as far as we know, the existence of humanity. And it's probably within like the last, I mean, when was the light bulb invented? Oh gosh. I'm going to say mid 1800s and take a stab. So until that point, you know, we relied on, gosh, we could light a candle if we really wanted to see something past sundown. But now it's the flick of a switch. I remember, you know, there have been so many times where I'll even open my phone as I kind of stir in the middle of the night, and suddenly I feel like I'm blasted awake by this aggressively bright phone screen. So it is kind of cool, and it feels a little unknown how we are impacting our own circadian rhythms, and if that will, like, are we creating evolutionary change because we are completely disobeying the rules of nature with our light? There may eventually be some sort of kind of adaptation and genetic thing regarding that. I mean, there's been some fantastic human studies. I mean, um, a lab in um, Boulder, Colorado, did an experiment looking at people where they took them camping and looked at their kind of sleep-wake cycles and melatonin, which is a hormone that is produced at night and it's kind of a 
used for a surrogate of kind of seeing what phase people are at. So some people are lark, some people are out, or some people get up in the middle of night or middle of the day or whenever. So they looked at how kind of a couple of weeks at kind of standard university life and then a couple of weeks camping. And they saw that their kind of phase aligned much more closely with the kind of onset of day and night as well. And you saw a bit of, a bit of an effect of sleep, I think, as well. And then there's another study done recently uh, by some people in Guildford. So they did a computational thing. And you might have heard the term chronotype before. So that is what phase your body clock is relating to the external environment. So say if you got up naturally at seven and went to bed at seven, whatever, you could say that was the standard. And then you could say, okay, those people who naturally get up at say four o'clock in the morning, say like your nans, maybe they're more of an early type. And those who maybe get up about midday, more of a late chronotype. And they kind of posited that some of the variation that we see might be due to the kind of um, light exposure that we're receiving at kind of dusk and into the night. And that might kind of broaden the kind of range that we're seeing. So have you found a genetic component to this or has it mainly been the light exposure that has influenced chronotype? Um, I'm not too sure about this. This is not really my expertise. I don't think there is a genetic component that has been observed so far, but yeah, I'm not too sure about that. So within the realm of your expertise and based on what you found so far, obviously I think this is something that is a very new... I mean, one of my... I think I started hearing about blue light and it's alleged impact on our eyesight and on our brain and, and on our sleep probably in the last three to four years. So the fact that you've done so much research on this already is actually really impressive to me. But based on what you do know so far, what would you suggest to a person who does spend potentially hours a day on their screens? Now, Drew and I are both students and we're spending at least two to three hours a day watching our computer screens at minimum for class. And then, of course, all of our work is now digital as well. My poor siblings are in middle school and high school, and they're spending upwards of six, seven, eight hours a day on their screens. So what can they do and what can we all do to help us kind of minimize the impact of our screen time? So I, th- I think the first thing is treat something only if it's necessarily a problem, okay? So if you're finding that, oh, I'm, I can't get up in the morning or, you know, if there's some kind of impact maybe with regarding sleep, then it's something to look at. But if you're completely happy with it and it's not affecting you, then, you know, it might be something that you don't need to adjust. The main thing to think about is how does light affect your internal body clock? And a fair few things to know, we know about. So although a lot of research has kind of been since 2000 when we found out about melanopsin, the history goes back way earlier than that. And things know, we know, such as the brighter the light, the more impact it's going to have. The duration of light, so if you have a bright pulse for just a couple of seconds, it's going to have probably a smaller effect than if you have it for much longer. The wavelength of light is also important so shorter wavelengths of light which typically blue that would be perceived usually as having a stronger effect and the time as well so the time you receive light is also important a way of thinking about this is imagine you're a mouse evolutionary you're a nocturnal animal if you go out when it's light you're going to be eaten yeah so 
if you see light, either woken up a bit too early or you've gone to bed a bit too late, and you need to shift your body clock appropriately, otherwise you'll end up having the same mistake the next day and you might get eaten. So if you see light kind of at the end of your night time, that suggests that you've gotten up a little bit too late. Okay, so what you might want to do is you might want to move your body clock in one direction. If, however, you get light at the beginning of the night phase, then that suggests that you've stayed up too late and you want to shift the other way. So depending when you get the light, depends on what's going to happen to your body clock. Totally. So, Dr. Meland, we like to ask this of everybody we bring on the, the podcast because, you know, we... We know that there's a lot of different routes people can take to get into research and science. So can you walk us through your journey to where you are today and let us know how you got here? Okay, sure. Um, So I think I was always kind of passionate about maths and kind of science growing up. But what really did it for me was the 2000 and I think it four Reese lectures, which were um, a radio thing on in the UK. And there was an American professor, Professor Villanor Ramachandran, who discussed about various neurological disorders and kind of the effects they had. And I found it absolutely fascinating. So when I went to university, I was split between physics and neuroscience. And slowly as we progressed, I decided that neuroscience was, I just had this love for that. Then uh, I was looking for PhDs and I remember hearing about lectures on vision and they just touched very briefly on this photoreceptor that isn't really involved with conscious visual perception but has an impact on your sleep-wake cycles. And I was thinking, you know, how have I not heard about this? This is kind of quite an interesting thing. So I started doing a bit of research into that and that led me to do a PhD with Professor Lucas up in Manchester, and then uh, on with Professor Brown. It is really cool how one or two people can really direct your path in science. I found that to be the case with myself as well. I can definitely second that. It's it's really funny how one or two brief encounters can change your interests and perceptions about a subject or a field entirely. Well, Dr. Moland, it was a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. That was another great interview. I really, really enjoyed Dr. Mullen's insight there and especially his journey to science and researching. I think it's really cool how he how he made that work. And Dr. Mullen was actually kind enough to share even more information with us after our interview. It turns out that when it comes to screen light and its effect on our eyes, there's an inverse square relationship. So what that means is if you double the distance between yourself and your screen, you'll actually reduce the amount of light in your eyes by one quarter. Huh. I guess my mom was right all those years. I should sit further away from the TV. I could not tell you how many times I heard that growing up. But this all brings us to a new segment, Two Truths and a Lie. Drew, I'll be reading three scientific paper titles, one of which I made up. Your job is to figure out which one is not legit. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right, number one, size does matter. Seagull mothers react more to the voice of smaller offspring. Two, SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted via contact and via the air between ferrets. Three, the proof is in the pudding. 
Children prefer lower fat but higher sugar than do mothers. Children prefer higher fat and lower sugar than do mothers. I'm going to go with the SARS-CoV-2 one being wrong. That one actually is real. SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted via contact and via the air between ferrets. So watch those ferrets, people. The incorrect title was number one, size does matter. It's actually crocodile mothers react more to the voice of smaller offspring, not seagull mothers. So the paper title was sort of real and size does in fact matter for crocodile mothers. Well, you got me on a technicality there, but the gist of it was was true. And that I knew there had to be some witty scientist out there making a, a, a pun. Oh, can you imagine the lab meeting that this article title was written at? They must have thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, they must have had themselves a cow. No. <laughs> a crocodile. They must have had themselves a crocodile. Okay, I think that is our sign to wrap up this week's episode. But as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. Be sure to tune in to episode 7, coming out on November 2nd. And as always, peace, love, and science.